Thank you. Great. Thank you all for being long-term survivors here. Uh, how many people from Manhattan live in Manhattan? Raise your hand. Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island? Nobody from Staten Island? The Bronx. Yay, Bronx. Westchester, Long Island, Jersey, all in the front. Uh, Connecticut. Upstate farther than Westchester. <laughs> Couple people. Um, what did I leave out? North Dakota. Just <laughs> one in the back. No, just kidding. Maine. What's that? Maine. You're from Maine. Yeah. Oh, how nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the big treat that you've all been waiting for is our final speaker, Dr. Ken Mayer who's professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and uh, director of the Fenway Clinic, which is for LGBT. And he is a world's expert on PrEP, which is on the forefront of our minds, and he's going to update us on PrEP. Ken, welcome back. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And I applaud uh, you all for staying late. Hopefully, it'll be of interest. So. Um, Start off with um, my disclosures, uh, research grants from um, Gilead and from Viv, but mainly uh, most of the studies I'm going to talk to you about today that we've done are NIH funded. Uh, so we're going to talk about um, who might benefit from PrEP, how best practices around initiation, and key aspects of self-care. But really, um, really looking forward for a discussion uh, with, with all of you. So I'd like to start off with the question, have you prescribed PrEP for any of your patients? So, no Bruce Springsteen music? Uh, okay, great. Bruce is in the building. All right. Okay, so this is a very prep experienced um, group. I'm glad to see that. And about how many patients have you uh, prescribed prep for? Less than 10, up to greater than 100? So, some PrEP experience, but a lot of people have had limited PrEP experience, so great. So, we have a lot to talk about today. So, right now we have this new paradigm for HIV. It basically, as you heard in the morning, we pretty much want to treat everybody as soon as they're ready. And that's because of a couple key studies. HP10052 showed that people who were treated were less likely to transmit HIV to their partners. And then the start and temprano studies showed that the sooner you start treatment, the better it is for individual health. So we have that treatment as prevention paradigm, but we still have an epidemic where we had close to 40,000 new infections last year in the US, and there are key populations that are affected. Uh, black men who have sex with men, white men who have sex with men, and Latino men who have sex with men. Um, all three populations are uh, very heavily affected. And then, although the prevalence, if you take the absolute uh, total population in uh, the African-American community in the US, it's modest, it's still a disproportionate number of the new infections are affecting people in key populations. And a lot of this is not because of individual behavior, but it's more what's called assortative mixing, that people tend to be more likely to have partners from within their own pop population. 
So we have an epidemic that is highly concentrated but still uh, quite aggressive despite uh, the wider um, spread of treatment. So that's the rationale for PrEP. And this slide summarizes the randomized controlled trials uh, that have occurred uh, with PrEP. And what you can see in this diagonal line quite dramatically is that there were two studies um, in women that didn't show any efficacy but had very low adherence. And there was the PROUD study, which was done in genitourinary clinics in the United Kingdom. This was men who have sex with men. And the efficacy with the most stringent analysis intent to treat was 86% efficacy. And adherence was almost 100%. And then in the middle, you have um, uh, studies, uh, three different studies, three different populations. The first study in men who have sex with men, the IPREX study that we were involved in, 44% efficacy overall, but only about half the individuals had drug detectable at any given point in the study. Partners PrEP had higher level adherence and higher level of efficacy, and that was heterosexual discordant couples. And then um, TDF2, um, these were heterosexualists in Botswana. And the one uh, study that's missing the slide that's also right about here is the um, study of tenofovir alone for injecting drug users in Bangkok. So basically, uh, PrEP works if you take it is really the take home from this slide. So the other big question is we're giving people who are otherwise healthy uh, antiretroviral medication that we know has a non-zero risk of certain toxicities. So is it safe? And with more than 10,000 person years of experience from those initial trials, the answer is definitely yes. We have to monitor creatinine, and that's going to be a, a problem, more of a problem in older individuals, uh, uh, people with any other pre-existing uh, renal conditions. We also know that TDF can cause a, a bone safety signal. Uh, in other words, uh, there is a decrease in bone mineral density with DEXA scanning, with BMD, but this is a statistically significant, but not clinically significant finding. In other words, the, the level of change was uh, um, between one and 2% uh, resolved over time. But some people have said, but that's only because the follow-up is one to two years in these initial studies. What happens if somebody's taking PrEP daily for 10 years or 20 years? And the answer is we don't know. Um, but there were no um, increases in pathologic fractures, and there's no recommendation for people in general to get DEXA scanning before they start PrEP. Certainly, knowing uh, that somebody has adequate vitamin D, uh, somebody has um, a diet adequate in calcium, uh, is, is an important thing to think about. Somebody who has a diagnosis of osteoporosis, it would, would concern me about using uh, this medication, and it's part of the rationale for looking for new medications. So the U.S. Public Health Service guidelines for PrEP are, obviously, you want to determine H HIV status and make sure somebody's not becoming acutely infected. We don't do t routinely recommend RNA testing, uh, except if you worried about acute seroconversion, but it's preferable to do a fourth-gen test that will have antigen as well as antibodies so you can narrow the window of potential seroconversion for somebody who's at high risk. Obviously, you want to look at renal function. You want to um, um, vaccinate, vaccinate for hepatitis B if the person is um, um, seromarker negative. Um, we're concerned about people with chronic hepatitis B. It's not an absolute counterindication for PrEP if they're otherwise indicated, but the concern is that you stop the med medicines or if the person's non-adherent, you could select for resistance uh, to uh, medications that could treat chronic hepatitis B. Uh, one pill a day, and, and then, um, you know, we still provide condoms, and I'll give you the rationale why we want to still educate people about condoms, even though we know that many people who take PrEP don't want to use condoms necessarily. And then regular monitoring, and this is an area of discussion, how frequently should you be seeing people? At least quarterly initially, uh, some people feel that some individuals are stable and healthy and don't need to be seen as often, and there's some research going on in that area, and I'll talk a little bit about 
more about that in a minute. And then how often should we be doing some of the safety monitoring? And again, particularly for SDIs, that's an issue of discussion. CDC says every six months, but their data suggests that probably more often is preferable. Uh, so the, there's a lot of discussion since PrEP has um, first approved by the US FDA in 2012. Um, isn't it going to increase risk? This whole idea of risk compensation, you know, if you put seat belts in cars, people will drive faster. So are we encouraging people to be riskier? In the best case scenario, what's happening is you have somebody who's at high risk for HIV, they're highly adherent to the medication, they don't become infected, so that's a good thing. Obviously, the worst case scenario is somebody who's um, taking the medication erratically, uh, becomes HIV infected, selects for resistance. In the clinical trials, we didn't see much evidence uh, of that, but you can say that's not the real world. So we'll look a little bit about what's, what's been happening uh, subsequently. And the key is to match the prevention uh, counseling messages uh, with, uh, with the behavior. So it's not uh, take a pill and we're never going to see you again, but really try to figure out um, how is PrEP being used in that individual's self-care. The first data we have of something approaching the real world was a large demo project conducted in STD clinic in San Francisco, in Miami, and at Whitman Walker Clinic, LGBT clinic in Washington, D.C. And at the end of 48 weeks, they found that individuals, the vast majority, had uh, levels that were consistent with protection. Uh, there's a post hoc analysis that I'll show you that suggests that taking at least four pills a week for men who have sex with men will be a sufficient level to have, have a high level of protection. And that was still maintained after 48 weeks. So you can say, well, about a third of the people weren't adherent at 48 weeks, but in this setting where they didn't get any additional, um, uh, anything else above additional um, care and counseling, this was not a formal uh, um, protocol, uh, individuals, uh, um, seem to do quite well. And there's even better data from a Kaiser Permanente uh, system, a large HMO in the Bay Area uh, in, of San, around San Francisco. In this study, uh, there was an initial paper uh, in clinical infectious diseases several years ago, and it was just updated and published in JADES a few months ago. And they had uh, 972 patients. They had um, 850 person years of follow-up. So that means that not everybody was followed for even a year, but still a pretty robust number. And in that setting, um, there were no seroconversions for people on PrEP. Two of their uh, patients discontinued PrEP because they thought they weren't risky anymore, and those individuals subsequently became infected. There were differentials in adherence, people who were African-American, uh, smokers, and had higher copays. So you can see some structural issues, some cultural issues that may be um, having a role here in uh, associated with adherence, and again, trying to tailor uh, the adherence counseling to the population is going to be really important. Um, Something that they found, and we've also seen at Fenway, is PrEP is not for life. In, in, their, in their series, they found that a, almost a quarter of people had discontinued PrEP after initiating it. And again, in the best case scenario for PrEP, that means seasons of risk, that somebody's on PrEP at a period of time where they think they're at high risk for HIV, but their risk may change, and then they uh, can discontinue PrEP. Um, there were five discontinuations because of renal function, so that, you know, so that again, is non-zero, but, you know, uh, five out of um, 972 individuals certainly suggest that the vast majority of people tolerate the medication quite, quite well. But STD rates did continue to rise, and the STD issue is a concern. Uh, in the demo, demo project that I showed you before, just the initial data about adherence, they actually looked at the um, frequency of SDI screening, and they found that there were so many asymptomatic SDIs that they picked up on a quarterly basis that if you waited six months, you would have so many more secondary transmissions to other partners in a population that's highly sexually active that they made a strong case that if you're monitoring somebody who is sexually active on PrEP who has multiple partners, 
quarterly screening uh, for bacterial SDIs, uh, gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia, uh, for all and all relevant mucosal orifices is definitely warranted. Um, this is our own experience at Fenway Health in Boston. As Tripp said, uh, Fenway has a large LGBT population. It, it serves diverse communities, but um, there are uh, probably uh, six to 7,000 men who have sex with men who access services there out of an overall clinic population of over 30,000. And you can see here over time, um, uh, till uh, 2011, uh, there wasn't any PrEP available, so none of the pink uh, bar shows up. But then you can see that uh, by 2015, a large number of the people with new SDIs were people on PrEP. But you can also see that in, in the um, yellow mustard uh, color, uh, that there's still a large number of people who are HIV uninfected who are developing bacterial SDIs who are not on PrEP. And that's a source of concern. Those are people you might think should at least be considered as PrEP candidates because they're at high risk for HIV seroconversion. And there's still a substantive number, although a smaller percentage over time, of people who are HIV infected who have SCIs. So we can't blame um, PrEP for the rise in SCIs. We can say it's contributing to it, but it's an overall change in the paradigm for people that people don't feel that they need to use condoms to protect themselves against HIV. If they're HIV infected, if they're undetectable, they don't feel they're going to transmit, and that's correct in terms of the research uh, uh, data. Uh, if people are HIV uninfected and they're using PrEP and they're adherent, they're not going to necessarily acquire HIV uh, for the most part. So that's part of the disinhibition. But we have to educate people that they still are at very high risk for other SCIs, and these other SCIs have morbidity as well. So that uh, if, if they're willing to, um, if, if they're knowingly willing to acquire these SCIs and come in for routine screening, fine, but they have to understand that this is uh, part of the new reality. The other issue is that PrEP is not 100% protective. There have been three very well-documented cases of individuals who had um, protective levels of um, the antiretrovirals in their system at the time that they became acutely HIV infected. In two of the cases, these were individuals who became infected with multidrug resistant HIV. Uh, so the, the, the virus that they became infected with was resistant to tenofovir and emtricitabine. Um, in the clinical trials, there were some infections where individuals selected for resistance, but very often it was that they weren't taking PrEP at the time that they became, uh, that they became infected. Uh, these two cases were clearly cases where uh, there was antiretroviral medication on, on board because the clinician thought enough to save blood at the time that they were working these pa patients up for seroconversion, and they had protective levels, they still became infected. Third case is the most concerning. This was a case of a Dutch man who had multiple sex sexual partners, had frequent anal SDIs, um, and at the time that he became infected, he had a protective level of tenofovir and emtricitabine in, in his blood, and he became infected with a virus that was fully susceptible to all antiretrovirals. So this was not a case of uh, transmission of resistant virus, but a suggestion that the mucosa were so altered that, that he had increased susceptibility um, despite having the medication on board. So we also have to tell our patients that PrEP is not 100% protective. These are three cases there have now in the United States, there are more than 100,000 individuals that have PrEP prescriptions that have been written for them. So it's a very small number, but it's a non-zero number. And again, it needs to be part of the counseling and another rationale why some individuals might want to continue to use condoms while using PrEP at the same time. So. Uh, case here, um, we, uh, case number one. Uh, so this is a 25-year-old woman who presents to you with a vaginal discharge and a faint non-pyritic rash. Her workup reveals that she has uh, chlamydia trachomatis um, as well as syphilis. She's HIV uninfected. She indicates that she likes to go out and party on weekends with a group of friends um, and they use recreational drugs. 
Um, and she uh, does have new partners uh, um, um, on a non-infrequent basis. So what would you recommend to her about PrEP? Would you tell her, one, that um, TDF-FTC is not effective in women, so you'd not recommend it? Or you'd say she doesn't need PrEP because she's not risky every day, so her risk is not sufficient to warrant PrEP? Or you'd say if she were to initiate TDF-FTC PrEP, she would need to be adhering to a daily regimen? Or you'd say she's not a candidate for PrEP because of her episodic substance use? Or you'd say that she should only use injectable PrEP? So let's vote. If she were to initiate TDF-FTC prep, she would need to be adherent to daily regimen, uh, the vast majority, and I would agree, agree with that. And, and, and the reasons uh, for that are, are the following. We know that prep works for women. So some people um, saw some of the efficacy studies that, um, and, and said, gee, um, they didn't show um, efficacy. Uh, may, maybe this drug doesn't work for women. But in the partners prep study, these were uh, heterosexual discordant couples, and about half the participants were women, and they were able to look at drug levels, and they found basically, uh, uh, and the, the study had randomization to tenofovir alone and tenofovir emtricitabine, um, uh, and they found that uh, women who had levels in the uh, plasma that were consistent with daily prep use, 94% level of efficacy, 85% with just tenofovir alone. So we know that this works if you take it on a daily basis, but we also know that it is less forgiving for women. And what I mean by that is, uh, this was a study done at the University of North Carolina, uh, pharmacology. Uh, women would, would, ta would um, take directly observed um, TDF-FTC, and you could see that in, in the um, dark blue, you could, you could find a a TDF in um, rectal tissues, um, I'm sorry, in the green, in rectal tissues up to 14 days after an initial dose, though you wouldn't detect it in um, uh, cervical uh, tissue um, um, after about two days. m stayed in the system longer. But in other words, the decay kinetics are such that in cervicovaginal tissue, uh, tenofovir does not stay, stay in as long. So, so this dwell time uh, means that there's less protection unless you're maintaining an active level, and that, that requires daily dosing. Whereas for men who have sex with men, in a post hoc analysis from the IPREX study, what we found was that uh, there was nobody who became infected who had drug levels uh, consistent with taking the drug on a daily basis, but if you went to even looking at four to six uh, tablets a week, uh, there were no infections in that group. Now, this is a post hoc analysis, so it doesn't mean that uh, four pills is as good as seven pills, but certainly the data are consistent with that, and uh, the data that we alluded to earlier that we'll talk about more, the hypergase study, suggested that event-level dosing may be protective as well. So there may be more flexibility for at least this particular um, um, dr drug combination, tenofovir and tricytabine, for men who have sex with men where a missed pill has less, less consequences than uh, for women if they're not taking the medication on a regular, this particular medication on a regular basis. So let's um, do another case. So this is an HIV discordant gay couple. They come to you and they ask about PrEP for the uninfected partner. The HIV infected partner has been virologically suppressed for three years and doesn't anticipate any changes in his regimen. So what would you suggest or ask next? So one, there's no need for PrEP since the infected partner is virologically suppressed. Two, you'd recommend PrEP for the uninfected partner since the risk of transmission is non-zero. 
or three, you'd like to talk to each of them separately before making a recommendation, and four, you'd refer them to a specialist. It's all Bruce, all the time. Uh, very interesting. So the majority of people uh, said you'd like to talk with them separately before making a recommendation. Uh, second largest was um, recommending prep for the uninfected partner, and few people um, saying that um, um, uh, virologically suppressed equal undetectable means um, uh, not being able to transmit. Uh, so this is one of something I'd say is a more nuanced question, I would go with um, um, the, the third option as well. And the thinking is this, there have been now subsequently two large observational studies of couples looking at this issue. HP10052 was, you know, you'd say a randomized controlled trial, it wasn't necessarily the real world, uh, but in the real world, do people who are virologically suppressed transmit to their partners? So the partner study uh, followed 888 um, HIV to in couples. It was mainly heterosexual couples, uh, primarily uh, conducted in Europe, and they found uh, that there were no transmissions when the partner was, um, HIV-infected partner was virologically suppressed. So that was um, very uh, reassuring. Another study, the um, Opposites Attract study, was uh, conducted in Australia, Brazil, and Thailand. This exclusively en enrolled uh, same-sex uh, male couples. And in this study, um, there were over 12,000 uh, condomless uh, acts of anal sex. Um, and they found that there were, were three transmissions, but in the three t cases where the transmission occurred, the transmission was from another partner. And so the reason why I think it's helpful to try to have the uh, discordant couple have separate conversations with the provider, if, if that's feasible, uh, because pe people who are uh, uh, um, HIV uninfected who have an infected partner may have other partners in, out, outside of that relationship and may need PrEP to protect them um, from, uh, from that, in that situation. The other question is, uh, you know, uh, I put out this case as somebody who's been very adherent to their medication, but in the real world, um, really getting a good ascertainment of whether um, the infected partner may periodically go on holidays is also going to be important uh, to be able to counsel the uninfected partner. Uh, again, we don't have uh, good cases of transmission occurring when a person is virologically suppressed for a sustained period of time. So, so you know, uh, proving a negative is always very difficult. But certainly, and, and some people feel that the rationale for PrEP may be for um, uh, intimacy in the uh, relationship. So there are a lot of nuances as clinicians we have to think through, but certainly the epidemiologic data say that infected individuals who are consistently taking medication are biologically suppressed, are not a high risk for transmission to their partners. But the uninfected partner is somebody we have to uh, also uh, think about what's the full uh, um, set of behaviors that that individual may be engaging in. Uh, and when um, the heterosexual discordant couple study I mentioned before, the partner's prep study, um, offered people a menu. So they enrolled a new set of couples in Kenya and Uganda who were um, HIV discordant. And th at this point in time, uh, both PrEP and treatment as prevention were available. And they said, you know, to the infected partner, uh, you can go on this medication and, and um, even if your CD4 is, is high and uh, you'll be biologically suppressed. And they said to the uninfected partner, you can go on PrEP. 
Um, and they found that about 80% of the HIV-infected people were ready to start treatment right away. So this was several years ago, but uh, there were a number of people who felt like treatment meant that they were um, acknowledging that they were sick or they felt well or they were concerned about the medication. So not everybody in discordant relationship um, um, is necessarily ready to start treatment immediately. And they found that over 90% of the individuals offered PrEP who were uninfected went on PrEP. A uh, substantial number of those individuals transitioned uh, off of PrEP after their partner um, became virologically suppressed. And they, they've, um, they calculated, based on their earlier studies, what the transmission rate they would have expected in these couples. And they said it would be about 5% per year. Um, and then they looked in the real world when they offered this menu to the couples, almost 1,000 couples, and they found that they had um, four infections. Um, three, three of the individuals who were on PrEP um, did not have detectable tenofovir um, um, in, in the blood. Um, so th basically, they weren't taking the, the PrEP uh, at the time. And there was one individual who declined PrEP um, who, um, who had other partners as well. So you know, again, in the clinical trial parlance, you'd say four failures, but that's a 0.2% um, incidence uh, in this study. Uh, but in the real world, there really, again, were no PrEP failures in the setting where you offer uh, discordant couples the menu of treatment as prevention and PrEP. So where are we now? So in the U.S., the CDC estimates that about 1.2 million Americans would benefit from PrEP. This is based on national probability studies. This is about one in four men who have sex with men. Uh, it's about uh, one in five people who inject drugs. And it's a very small number of heterosexuals, but because there's so many more heterosexuals than the other two key populations, still that's a larger number of individuals. And this is the population that has least availed themselves of PrEP so far. The numbers are getting up towards getting towards 150,000 um, scripts now that have been written for PrEP in the latest uh, um, uh, estimate uh, from people at, at Gilead. Um, uh, so the numbers are going up, but slowly but surely. In terms of utilization in the United States, we, we definitely have this discrepancy where we have an epidemic that's disproportionately affecting people of color, but PrEP utilization has not been as diverse. And similarly, uh, we still have about 30% of new HIV infections are among women, but women are much less likely to avail themselves of PrEP. And a very excellent presentation at our recent um, infectious disease uh, meetings um, by Paul Salcuni um, looked um, here in, in New York and looked at the boroughs. And sorry, this is not projecting uh, so well, but on the top, it's looking at indices of, uh, of PrEP uptake. And you can see um, the darker um, areas. So this area here is one of the heavier areas, uh, you know, very close to Chelsea. Uh, you can see uh, parts of Brooklyn, but if you go uh, further up, uh, Manhattan and you go into the Bronx, you go into many parts of Brooklyn, you don't see so much PrEP. And yet at the same time, you can also see a uh, disproportionate number of uh, individuals living in poverty in places where PrEP has not avail uh, been as available. You can also see a uh, high concentration of, of HIV. Uh, so the, the, the take home in New York City has been uh, that since 2012, there's been about a tenfold uptake in uh, the number of individuals on PrEP Based, based on one of the, the data systems that New York Health and Hospitals Department has. They were able to track going from less than 300 uh, individuals to more than 3,000 in this one data system alone. So, so there is increased scale up, but again, it's not commensurate in all parts of the city where there's the greatest need. And this, this is reflective of what's going on nationally. So we need to think of programs that can be culturally tailored for uh, the key populations of individuals who benefit the most uh, from H HIV um, uh, uh, prevention. So we did a national survey using one of the social media websites uh, to look at among men with sex with men about uh, prep utilization. We found that 
Um, there were different narratives that older men who have sex with men were more likely to anticipate side effects, and that's why some of the individuals who were at high risk for HIV were not availing themselves of PrEP. But among uh, uh, black men who have sex with men, uh, um, uh, um, Latino men who have sex with men, there were concerns uh, about access, uh, about providers' reactions uh, as well. So we have to really think about how to tailor PrEP uh, more specifically for key populations. There's one study conducted in the HIV Prevention Trials Network that tried to culturally tailor uh, PrEP delivery by training uh, clinical care coordination um, um, and t training a care team that was culturally competent to work with black men who sex with men. Uh, there was a high rate of PrEP uptake, but HIV incidence was still almost 3%. That's lower than some of the national surveys before PrEP was available in the population, but still higher than what we think is optimal. So we, it's, it's foundational, but it's not enough. And um, there were two studies in young men who have sex with men in the Adolescent Trials Network. Uh, the two studies enrolled men between the ages of 15 and 22 years of age. They um, offered uh, behavioral interventions, individual behavioral intervention versus group behavioral intervention. And they found that incidence was still pretty high. In the 18 to 22-year-old group, it was over 3%, and it was over 6% in the 15 to 17-year-olds. So this is just not good enough. So we definitely need um, more um, um, research, more um, uh, tailoring interventions for young men who have sex with men. What was interesting was that in the first three months, adherence was much better, and then just dropped off after three months. The visits were monthly for the first three months, and then they were quarterly. So some thought is the need to maintain more frequent contact with young people if they're going to be taking PrEP. So I want to move to another case. 53-year-old gay man with obesity and diabetes, he presents to you to discuss PrEP. He prefers not to use condoms. He's had rectal gonorrhea in the past year. His creatinine clearance is 75 ml um, uh, per minute. Um, he's heard that TDF uh, can affect his kidneys, so he's reluctant to um, start TDF-FTC for PrEP. What would you counsel him? He's not a candidate for TDF-FTC PrEP. He should be prescribed uh, TAF with FTC for PrEP. He could benefit from um, TDF-FTC for PrEP, weight reduction, quarterly creatinine monitoring. He could benefit from event-driven PrEP um, uh, on demand. Um, he should only use condoms when engaging in anal sex. <laughs> okay. Can't always get what you want. It's a good theme. Yeah, the majority of individuals answer so the question that way. And again, I think, I think um, there are reasons why uh, people um, think TAF may be great, and there are reasons why uh, there, there's reasons to think about on-demand prep as well. So there's really an exciting menu of things coming down the pike, but they're just not here yet. So I talk about TDF-FTC as PrEP 1.0, and we're, we'll be moving to future iterations. So we do have uh, different strategies like on-demand prep. Um, TAF is currently in a head-to-head -head study. Uh, there has been work on microbicides, that, um, some of which is still source for concern, so they're not ready for prime time. But there, um, there are two studies of intravaginal ring containing the NNRTI depiverine that did show some efficacy. And the question is, with increased counseling, can you get better adherence, and can that be a, a useful strategy? And there's several studies of injectable prep. You heard from uh, Trip earlier today about cabotegravir. And then the question is, can we use new technology to improve prep as well? So the Ipergay study was uh, um, uh, an intent-to-treat study of on-demand prep. 
So the individuals were told to take two um, Tenofovir FTC pills uh, within 24 hours of sex and not closer than two hours before sex, and then a pill a day for two days afterwards. So four, four pills per event. So you heard earlier, uh, the average number of pills was 15 a month, which is like four pills a week, which is similar to the post-hoc analysis of um, IPREX. So in this population that for the most part was sexually active and quite adherent, uh, the overall um, intent to treat reduction when they, after they had the open label um, availability of the medication to everybody in the study was 97%. So really uh, incredibly high um, um, effectiveness in, in, this, in this setting. The question about what, if you have less frequent sex, um, again, they did do a post hoc analysis, but their numbers were relatively uh, small but it looks promising. So we're in a situation right now where we only have this one randomized controlled trial. The French government felt the data are compelling enough that they have approved on-demand prep as equal, equal regimen, and they say you can offer people either daily or on-demand prep. The Dutch and a few other countries are doing demonstration projects that are looking at both modalities and looking at who picks which version, and then trying to see in the real world uh, how, how things uh, work out. The US FDA, at least up to the present time, has not felt the need to um, revises, and I've asked the CDC several times, and they've indicated that at least for the time being, they're going to probably wait for the results of some of these demonstration projects in Europe and other countries before making a decision about in the real world, are people sufficiently adherent when you're set, uh, and do, can people plan when they're going to have sex enough and know when to take medication in advance of sex to be able to make this on-demand strategy a useful strategy. In terms of the other approaches, uh, the one resource I'd recommend for your attention is avac.org, that's AVAC, the AIDS Vaccine Advocacy Coalition. They have a great resource, and this is just the timeline. It doesn't project well, but it, it shows um, uh, when we'll get data on the ring sometime in 2019. Uh, there are infusible antibodies, and that'll probably be um, um, well past 2020 where we'll have efficacy data. Um, the TAF study may go well into 2020. Long-acting injectable, cabotegravir, probably 2020, and then uh, vaccines. So there's a lot coming down the pike, but what we have right now is PrEP 1.0. Uh, there are um, approaches. I'm working um, with colleagues um, in Boston Providence and colleagues in San Francisco are also trying to develop apps that will increase uh, uh, PrEP uptake, uh, be in more regular communication with PrEP users. Uh, there's also work, a colleague of mine, Doug Krakauer, is looking at electronic health records. How can we prompt clinicians who are very busy to think about their patients might be PrEP candidates? Well, we have a host of data that might um, be very useful. So Atrius Health is an HMO in the Boston area. They have about 800,000 patients, um, 885 um, HIV-infected patients, and uh, last year about 250 patients were on PrEP. But Doug was able to construct an algorithm, people having STDs, people having other behavioral risks, where actually um, almost 1% of their patients should at least have a PrEP conversation. So trying to normalize this discussion is going to be extremely um, important. And here in New York City, uh, your health department uh, with uh, Deputy Commissioner Dimitri Daskalaskis um, has really been very forward-thinking with this place sure network, the idea that um, for everybody, knowing your status is the first foundational step. Uh, then um, uh, being on treatment and being adherent to treatment is the next step for those who are infected. And for those who are um, having recurrent risk, PrEP is an option. PEP, uh, which we don't have time to go into today, is also an option if a person has had an unanticipated uh, risk and doesn't plan to be recurrently risky. So we do have these antiretrovirals now as a very potent tool for HIV prevention. So I want to thank you very much for your attention and be happy to take any questions.
Thank you, Ken. So we have time for some questions if you want to come to the mics or uh, write them down. Uh, Ken, U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. What do you think? Is that, is that right? Um, I, I, I think, I mean, I think the epidemiologic data are very powerful, so, I, so I, I think it's important. I think it's a great message to destigmatize HIV for people living, living with HIV. I'm, you know, as a clinician, I'm, I'm not also a big fan uh, of slogans in general because I think there's always a nuance, you know, um, but I certainly, you know, I certainly want to tell somebody who has, you know, started um, his or her primary antiretroviral regimen, has been on it consistently and has stayed undetectable, that there, that there are not, no case reports of that person transmitting HIV uh, to partners. Is it possible? I can't prove a negative, but it certainly seems uh, highly implausible given the tens of thousands of, of acts of condomless sex. So you do want to have people not feel that they have to have uh, a stigma about um, sexual relations uh, if they're uh, responsibly taking their antiretroviral medication. Any research on combining birth control pills with PrEP? Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, the vaginal ring, um, people were not excited about the initial vaginal ring results because they, they were in the 20 to mid-30 range, though, um, though post hoc analysis said, well, uh, some of the women, these studies were done in, um, in so southern Africa, and um, women who were over 25 years of age ha actually had a higher level of protection. They had a higher level of adherence. But people said, but the epidemic in uh, South Africa, for example, is particularly virulent uh, between the ages of 18 and, and 25, so that's the population you want to protect, and they're not using the ring that regularly. But Again, there's a real difference in a clinical trial where you say to somebody, you may be getting a placebo ring or you may be getting a ring that we don't know if it works and it could, could hurt you, um, as opposed to saying, we now know if you leave the ring in uh, uh, when you're having intercourse, your partner won't feel it. We have enough data. Some of the women took the ring out during intercourse because they were concerned about uh, the partner's perception. And we know that if you leave it in and you maintain it, uh, you will have a higher level of protection. So if, if in these... Um, Effectiveness studies, there are two of them underway now, and we'll have data within the next year. If the efficacy estimate increases, these rings will be licensed for use. And following on them, there's already early phase studies of looking at hormonal contraception added to the ring. And um, uh, there's a, a ring that's very uh, popular globally, the Nuva ring, that's made by one of the large uh, pharmaceutical companies. So it's, it's not hard for big pharma that's already making contraceptive rings to add an antiretroviral to a ring if we have proof of concept uh, that in the real world uh, uh, women at risk will use it and you can see a population level benefit. There are also, as Tripp mentioned, uh, EFDA, um, uh, the Merck compound, uh, um, which is very, very potent. One of the ways that they're looking at that is possibly as an implantable um, antiretroviral, and we know that there are hormonal implants, uh, Norplant, for example, and people have talked about uh, combined um, implants. The issue about the ring and these other prevention technologies, why people are excited, A, it gives women agency in a number of different ways, but B, it may destigmatize some of these prevention technologies because a woman going into a reproductive health center um, maybe going in for uh, HIV prevention, maybe going in for um, um, reproductive health, uh, maybe going in for both reasons, so it may normalize some of the conversations. Okay, I got a lot of questions. Okay, so I'm gonna... okay quick. I got... Yeah. Uh, doxycycline for STI prophylaxis. Ah, great question. So the hypergase study nested into it uh, a study of doxycycline because they were seeing such high rates of STIs among these uh, uh, French and uh, Quebecois, men who have sex with men. So they, um, 
uh, randomized to 100 milligrams of doxycycline um, uh, for, for post-exposure prophy prophylaxis. Uh, and they found a significant decrease in the rate of new chlamydia infections, the rate of new syphilis infections, and their combined endpoint for SCI infections was significant. But when they separated out gonorrhea infections, there was no effect. So we're left with a, a positive result for two out of the three STIs, and the concern is that gonorrhea has um, increasing resistance evolving. Um, um, not so much in Europe yet, but certainly more in Asia, and um, some cases reported on the West Coast. So if you're going to have chronic antibiotic exposure, a population that's acquiring a lot of SCIs, might you um, select for other resistance by having this chronic antibiotic exposure? So that's the theoretical concern. Uh, Again, this is one of these things where the French really blazed the path, but nobody's talked yet about doing a, a follow-up study or a longer-range uh, study. So it's just sort of sitting there. Um, I think it's going to be an area where people are going to be scratching their heads for the next few years, uh, but uh, there may be, may be further movement. Um, uh, I wish I, I could tell you, at, th at this point, there's no U.S. normative body that's yet recommending this. Certainly the CDC is not recommending this based on the single study, and the concern that if you're not having an effect of gonorrhea, in a relatively short study over the longer term, there could be more bad, bad, um, bad outcomes than good outcomes. Dr. Mayer, okay, we get it. We shouldn't use TAF for PrEP yet. What about using TAF for PEP? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's a, it's a data, we're in the data-free zone. I mean, I think you could justify it um, more readily because you're, you're, you're um, using it with, um, generally with a third drug. Uh, this day and age um, in the U.S., that's generally an integrated strand transfer inhibitor. So I think, um, uh, you know, the, the issues may, may not, not be as, um, you know, not be as, as concerning, but we have, we have no data for it. And to my knowledge, the CDC hasn't done any animal models uh, studies yet. So it would be an extrapolation, but I think you could, you could justify it, but it's not on any uh, normative guidance yet. There are some studies planned over the next few years to look at some of the newer combinations like uh, TAF, um, FTC, and Bigtegravir. Uh, so we will have data, but it, it's not gonna be uh, for at least another year or two. I guess the other thing to add is that uh, TDF renal toxicity really only occurs after prolonged use, and PEP by its nature is four weeks. So probably the risk of toxicity from TDF in the short term is not very large. Here's a good one. Should partners of elite controllers not on ART be given PrEP? Yeah, I would say in that case, yes, uh, because uh, there have been uh, some studies in elite controllers where uh, small amounts of virus can be found in the general tract. You know, the thing is in humans, we do not know what the um, minimal number of virions is to transmit. We know in one postdoc analysis uh, from, from Africa, um, Tom Quinn, uh, led analysis written in the New England Journal uh, several years ago uh, before ARTs were widely available, that individuals who had copies, um, uh, copy numbers less than 1,500 um, didn't transmit to their partners. But again, that relatively small cohort, relatively short follow-up, so we can't say uh, transmission couldn't occur. And if, if you can find the virus in the body fluid, I say I would prefer the individual um, who's exposed to be able to be protected. Okay. Um, is there a different approach in monitoring patients on PrEP if they have only one functional kidney? Uh, wow, that's a great question. They, uh, I, I, I think I just would have a very low threshold uh, if I saw um, changes in, in creatinine clearance. So certainly 
the change, you know, so somebody who started off with, with um, creatinine clearance, you know, uh, in the 80s, I, I wouldn't necessarily wait till it went to 60 to, um, to suggest that they might want to uh, stop uh, the, um, the TDF-FTC. Uh, but I don't know that I would, I wouldn't monitor more frequently than, than uh, quarterly. I don't think there's any indi indication for that. Can you comment on TDF-FTC levels in the female genital tract? And then what do we know, if anything, in transgender women? Uh, in, in terms of um, the levels in the female genital tract, um, the, uh, the one slide I showed um, was really um, the group that has the largest amount of data. So the, the levels uh, tend to be lower um, on, you know, on a concentration basis than in uh, rec rectal secretions. But again, they're sufficiently ro robust uh, to be associated with a high level of protection in individuals who took the medication on, on a daily basis. Uh, in terms of transgender women, we have pretty good understanding of the systemic effects of the um, medication where, where uh, the commonly used regimen, uh, hormonal regimens that transgender women would be using are not expected to be altering uh, the drug levels uh, significantly. But there are questions about some of the transporters, and, and there's work going on at Johns Hopkins uh, trying to, to look at whether at an intracellular level, whether the intracellular concentrations uh, may, may, may vary uh, because of the exogenous effects, effects of hormones. Um, in the problem that we have in terms of saying uh, much about transgender women up until now is that only one of the uh, initial studies um, enrolled uh, transgender women, that was the IPREX study, and the percentage of transgender women in, in the whole cohort was relatively small, was uh, uh, less than 15%. Uh, percent. So there was, um, so when you looked overall, transgender women uh, did not tend to have the same benefit as uh, uh, cisgender uh, men who have sex with men uh, in, in the study, but they also tend to have much lower levels of adherence uh, to the medication. Many of, of the women were recruited uh, 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 in uh, Peru and Ecuador and uh, were tended to be poorer than the, than the overall cohort and tend to be more likely to be um, supporting themselves in survival sex having um, much more difficult life circumstances. So the question is, if a transgender woman was uh, fully adherent uh, to PrEP, would there be a reason to think that um, she would not have the same benefit? And the best of our knowledge, we don't think that's the case. And there are several demonstration projects now, um, several in California, that are underway that will answer that a whole lot better. And they won't be, they won't have a, a randomized comparator, but they'll be following large enough numbers, several hundred uh, transgender women over time, and trying to look at. How do you optimize adherence through counseling and through other support um, interventions and then see in a cohort of, of transgender women who are adherent to PrEP if you see a, a, high, a high level of protection? Last question. Whatever happened to Maravarak for PrEP? Ah, I think, doc, I think Dr. Gulick uh, um, um, asked that question. But um, since um, Dr. Gulick is a protocol chair, I was privileged to be co-chair with him and uh, T Tim Wilkin, uh, also of Cornell, um, of a study that um, enrolled uh, uh, 400 uh, uh, men um, and uh, 200 women and uh, followed them um, uh, over time. I look, looked at uh, four different regimens, uh, including uh, uh, Maravarok uh, alone. Uh, the study was a phase two study, so it was uh, safety. Uh, we found that Maravarok for PrEP was quite safe. 
Uh, we found that it was well tolerated. We found that the side effect profile, this was a totally blinded study, so everybody got three pills. Some people got Tenofovir FTC, some got Maravaroc plus Tenofovir, some got Maravaroc plus uh, FTC, some got Maravaroc alone, but everybody got three pills. And the side effects were not radically different between the four groups. We thought Maravaroc would be infinitely better tolerated, but uh, people tended to tolerate all of the medications. Uh, there were seroconversions, uh, five seroconversions, but uh, in four of the cases, people were clearly non-adherent. Um, uh, and four, uh, five were um, people on Maravaroc um, regimen. Uh, so, it, we, but we can't really impute anything related to the efficacy of Maravaroc in that, that setting because uh, the individuals were non-adherent. So what we're left with is that it was safe, it was well tolerated, uh, we, um, we don't have efficacy to uh, suggest, we don't have efficacy data yet, um, uh, so will there be an efficacy trial to see whether it's um, efficacious or we have another oral regimen? The answer is probably not, but that's more because the, the same company now that oversees the development of Maravroc is overseeing the development of cabotegravir, and as, there's much more interest in injectable PrEP than in developing another oral PrEP agent. Okay, thanks. Please join me in thanking Ken. <clears throat> I'd like to thank all our speakers. I think it was a great day. Uh, I'd also like to thank the International AIDS Society USA, uh, led by Donna Jacobson, who hosted the course today. Also, Kristen and Scott, who did a uh, tremendous backup. Uh, I'd like to thank Bruce Springsteen for uh, his frequent appearances. And I'd like to thank you all for sticking it out on a beautiful Friday. Please join us back in the spring. The day of the course is March 30, and we'll see you then.